Welcome back to the Jacob Kelly interview series. Today is a takeaways episode and the takeaways episode is where I sit down, I talk to you one-on-one about my most recent interview. You know, the interview oftentimes is me and the guest, but I want to have something for just you and I. And so I like to do these takeaways episodes. They're pretty casual. I do them in one take. I don't edit them. I just sit down here, riff for 15, 20, 30 minutes. And then I just put like a preset on this and upload it. So it's super raw. Um, but it's fun. I enjoyed it. I did it on my old podcast, my social life, and I wanted to run this one as well. And so I'm going to keep doing them. Um, today we're discussing my conversation with Peter Freestone. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to the interview yet, Peter was Freddie Mercury's personal assistant for 12 years. And it wasn't any regular old personal assistant job. Like Peter lived with Freddie. And so that meant for over a decade, Peter Freestone spent 24 hours a day with one of the greatest rock and roll stars ever. And so Peter... There are many people on this planet who knew Freddie Mercury better than Peter Freestone. And I discovered Peter when I was studying Freddie Mercury and like, what does that even mean necessarily? And so what I'm trying to do lately is pick someone I'm interested in and go deep on them for like two months and just like read everything I can, listen to every interview, watch every documentary. And I started doing this because I was like frustrated that I was reading all these books and like nothing was really coming out of it. And so this was a way for me to to do two things. I mean, one, it's for me to create something. So I'm I'm getting something out of reading. And by creating something, one, I'm cauterizing what I'm learning. Like I'm, I'm really grounding what I'm learning. I'm solidifying it because I'm trying to, I guess, technically teach it to others, but like organize my thoughts. And by creating something, it also further reinforces what I've learned. And so by writing essays about what I've learned and making videos, I'm able to like recall all these concepts I learned that I wouldn't have had I just read the book and moved on with my life. And I'm trying to do a one to like go specific on one person because I'm going to spend this time to do essays and make videos. I want to spend a lot of time and like pull all the insights I can and let that, whatever comes out of that one, two month process be what inspires my next work. And I wasn't intending to start with Freddie Mercury, but one day I just started reading Freddie Mercury in his own words. And I really knew nothing about Freddie Mercury. This was back in December. And I, I really, like, I knew next to nothing. Like, my mom would play some Queen songs growing up. Like, Fat Bottom Girls was one my mom played Bicycle. They're, like, the two main Queen songs. I guess, obviously, like, um, We Are the Champions and stuff like that. And what, I can't blank on the name of their song, but it's like, do do That song. <laughs> um, we Will Rock You. Oh, my goodness. Um, like, those are, like, the four Queen songs I probably knew growing up. I guess I, another one bites the dust while, like, but like I knew and could recognize these Queen songs, but that was like the extent of my knowledge. I, if you'd asked me, I would have had no idea that Freddie Mercury had passed. I didn't even, I didn't know Freddie Mercury was gay or bi or whatever. Like the, either way, I didn't know that. Like I knew literally nothing about Queen other than the fact that they made good songs. And I could recognize some of them. I probably couldn't even named all of them that I could recognize. But so I I had this book because it was like a free book on my Kindle, like with prime reading. It was a free book. So I was like, oh, it seems interesting. And I'd gotten like a year before and I never read it. And I decided to read it. And I was like, and I was just absolutely stunned when I started reading it. It was just time. I don't know if timeless is the right word, but like Freddie was very ahead of his time. And like a lot of these things and a lot of these concepts he was talking about as it comes to art and creativity, I felt were directly applicable to today. Like you could swap out the word artist for YouTuber and song for video. And it's like very relevant to the creators of today in 2023. And so that was interesting to me. And I just, 
as I went through this book, I became more and more invested. I took so many highlights that eventually I was like, I'm just going to keep going. And so I ended up watching every interview I possibly could, watched like five different documentaries. I watched the Bohemian Rhapsody movie, which I wasn't the biggest fan of. I understand it's a movie, but I just like, I think it would have been much better had I watched it before I'd done this studying or like many months after because I I watched Bohemian Rhapsody as soon as I finished studying Freddie and Queen. Every little inaccuracy I could pick out because all the, the the details were fresh in my mind. And so I didn't enjoy Bohemian Rhapsody as much as I would have liked to. I still think it's an interesting film. I still think the, the Live Aid performance at the end is really cool. And I used a lot of it when editing the cut-down version of this interview for YouTube. Um, but yeah, I watched it. Like I said, documentaries, interviews, as much as I could. And, and in that, that, that studying of Freddie Mercury, I stumbled onto an interview with Peter. I didn't actually watch it at the time. I was like, interesting. Peter Freestone went to his went to his website, saw there was a contact form, and then I just based, I copy and pasted that page for whenever I was ready to start doing this podcast. Because at the time, I hadn't started the show yet. I knew it was something I wanted to do, so I started like keeping a list of interesting people that I found, and Peter was one of them. So I sat on it for a while, and eventually I reached out to his manager, Milan, 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 and we set it up. And the first time we went to do the interview, Peter actually ended up having an unexpected trip to the hospital. And less than a week after being released, they we'd scheduled another interview and we recorded this podcast. And to his credit, he powered through for 40 minutes. We were talking before the interview being tired and how tired he was. Um, but we still, we did 40 minutes. Um, so I really appreciate him for that. And also Milan texted me beforehand and was like, hey, do you want me to record Peter with our camera and a microphone on our end. And of course, like the quality that you get from that is just so much greater than recording over Zoom or something. And so that was fantastic um, that we got that. And so it really increased the quality of the final product of the the podcast, uh, the video version of the podcast. And one thing you actually, if you've watched the video version, whether you watched the six minute version on YouTube or you watched the full video on Spotify, my little behind the scenes, I had mic issues when we recorded. I was trying to record my audio on Adobe Audition, but it was also, I didn't realize it was the mic that was going into Google Hangouts where we, where we did the conference, we had the conversation. And so my mic was like splitting between the two. So my mic was super garbled in the recording and I had my camera settings. The volume was turned all the way down because I do that when I use my lav mics. And so my camera didn't pick up any audio really that I could use. And so I re-recorded every single question of this interview. I, for, what's the word? I tried to basically get them as close to verbatim as I could when I re-recorded. And so if I stumble in the interview or if I stutter, that was intentional. I was trying to make it as authentic as I possibly could. I didn't want to try and change the context of a question or change the meaning of what I asked. I was trying to be as close to verbatim, verbatim as I possibly could. And so I've only ever done that once before in my life. And it was for an interview I did on my social life, my old podcast episode, like 40, 50, somewhere in there with Seth Feingerch, who was Gary Vaynerchuk's audio engineer. Um, but anyways, I digress. So that's a little behind the scenes. So if you watch this, I'm curious to know if you picked up on the fact that I had to re-record all of the questions. There's a couple moments I pick out because like the emotion doesn't necessarily translate. Like Peter will laugh and then I don't. And there's not even like a hint of me laughing in my question. And so for the most part, 
I don't think you can tell, but there's a couple moments where I'm like, ah, oh, the emotion doesn't translate from the from the end of Peter's answer to my next question, and that kind of bugs me. But it is what it is. I wasn't gonna go re-record it again. Um, but overall, I I'm glad I was able to do this. I'm glad Peter was able to come on. I want to give a shout out again to Milan for helping get the high quality video and audio um, on their side in Czech Republic. And so I have quite a few takeaways here. And some of them will like overlap with some of the essays that I've written, right? Because I spent so much time like studying this. And if you're curious, the two essays that I wrote, I wrote one, which was a juxtaposition of Queen's discography um, compared to or juxtaposed against the current state of YouTube and the creator economy. So I wrote that back in December. Um, that one's called Another One Bites the Dust, Why You Won't Remember 99% of YouTubers in 10 Years. And then I just wrote one about Freddie Mercury's creative process, which was interesting to, to learn about and how he kind of uses resistance as his guide. And we'll probably get into most of the stuff through my takeaways with Peter. And a lot of what ended up happening through this interview, and I'm and I'm kind of torn if I approached it the right way, but a lot of it was like taking what I learned and kind of throwing it out to Peter and seeing if I if it stuck from something. Like if my takeaway from like studying Queen and Freddie after two months if I understood it correctly and I could kind of throw it out there and get Peter's interpretation on it, whether it be Freddie's creative process, the band's creative process, all that. Um, and it wasn't as much about Peter, which we might do another interview at some point. He did say he'd be happy to come back on, um, focus more on Peter himself for able to do that. Um, but I still think this was a really interesting interview and like I listened to it today and took a ton of notes. And so I just want to dive, dive into this after my 10 minute intro, but, um, the first one, obviously, is like that. As Freddie's able to make it feel like he's performing just for you, and I think that that's important, right? Like, in order to establish a relationship with someone, they need to be able to. They need to feel like you're speaking right to them. I think that applies to this digital world that we're in now, where I'm very intentional, and I slip up sometimes, of course, but I try not to say "you guys," right? Like a lot of people think that because there's, they get however many views, whether it be fifty, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a million that there is an audience there. And so they can just say, you guys, because it's 10 million people watching. But those people don't all watch together, right? And I mean, it's different. This is a little bit different from a concert, but like when people watch your YouTube videos or listen to your podcast like you are now, I'm assuming you're not watching it or listening to this with a group of people, right? And so if I were to say you guys, it kind of feels weird because you're by yourself right now, whether you're at the gym or you're in your car or whatever you're doing, you're on a walk, you're on a podcast walk, love doing those. Like you're not w listening to this with a group of people. And so it'd be weird for me to say you guys when it's just one person listening. And so I think it's important to be able to make it feel like you're creating something just for one person. And obviously it was different for... Freddie, like for him, it wasn't saying for you and like using the word you and not saying you guys as much because there's clearly an audience there so you can address the crowd. So that's different. But he did it by trying to make eye contact and look at as many people as he possibly could and be on every square inch of the stage, um, which I thought was interesting is that the importance of making your audience feel like they have a relationship with you, right? It's like they are, it is, which is interesting because you have to remember, especially for concerts, it's like someone doesn't get to see you very often they might never see you again and so it's a very personal experience for them and if you're able to amplify that with what you do on stage it will only deepen their experience and their connection with you and it applies somewhat again to making online videos is you have to be able to make your connect with your audience on a one-on-one -on -one level at scale which is a very difficult thing to do and another thing too but like freddie's performance 
And I thought this was interesting, right? It's like Peter, he goes, he didn't just go to sing the songs. He went there to actually perform and to put on a show. Like he added such, he, there, he focused on the entertainment aspect of all of this. And he tried to make it an experience, not just, it was more than a concert for him. And that makes me think of like with my own creations and what I make, how can you make it more than just what people expect? I guess that's actually a way of putting it. I didn't even have that in my notes. I just, that's, this is the fun part of doing this. Sometimes these things hit you just as you're talking out loud. And I do my best thinking actually I'm talking out loud, but is that you have to take what people's expectation is and find a way to surpass it. Right. And so with Freddie, it was by putting on an actual show and making a performance and dressing up and having the lighting and being on every square inch of the stage and he had some really interesting ideas this is a um a not necessarily a pg idea but this is from i read peter Hintz's book who was freddie's personal roadie who's if you're a queen fan his name is his nickname was ratty um i'm trying to find he had a really interesting idea on making it a show um, I'm just trying to find it. I don't know if I can find it. Um, but basically, I was going to read you the exact excerpt from Peter's book, and I can't pull it up. I don't know the exact words. Let me. I'm going to check one other spot here. Um, oh, I got it. I got it here. So here's the direct quote. And again, this was like just making it a fun, weird experience. Is... The Dickmobile is one idea that never saw the light of day and was actually dreamed up by Fred, possibly one of his more, quote, fueled moments. His idea involved a large pink phallic-shaped container like a fairground rocket ride that would be hung above the audience and hidden by black drapes. Before the show, Fred was going to put on a disguise, quite false mustache, question mark, and be ushered through the audience to a secure area where he would climb a rope ladder and clamber into the device. As the house lights dimmed, Fred and his, quote, dickmobile, illuminated by spotlights, would be propelled over the raised heads of the audience towards the stage, directing a powerful beam of light from the end of the... Anyways. And all of that to say, this is a funny example, it's a funny anecdote, I didn't want to be the only one to know, I wanted to share that with you, but is that he was always trying to, and again, it might have been some more field moments. That was clearly like a joke, like not something necessarily serious, but like he was always looking for ways to elevate the experience of his audience. That would be hilarious. People would talk about that specific mobile for a very long time. Like that would be something you would tell people about forever. He was always finding ways to try and make the experience better and, and something people would actually remember. And he does he's not just there to sing the songs. He was there to put on a show. He wasn't there to do the bare minimum. He was to exceed as expectations in any way he possibly could. My next takeaway is about Freddie's creative process. And again, I've written the, about this. So if, if you want to see my take on his creative process, you can. It's on my website, thejacobkelly.com. But when I was talking to Peter, it was interesting that when they'd get to the studio, Freddie would go, and this is something I didn't actually have exactly in this way in my essay, but he would say how Freddie would spend 20 to 30 minutes just kind of playing around with the chord progressions. And if he stayed longer than that, you knew he had something. And basically, so what he was doing there, he's playing the chord progressions, just trying to find the song. He's trying different ideas to see what sticks, and he'd follow that idea further and just see how far it would go. And if it would fizzle out, he would go back and try more chord progressions. But if he stayed there longer than 20 to 30 minutes, you knew there was a song there that he was trying to find and trying to form. But if it wasn't there, he would just drop it and that would be it. 
And a couple interesting things there for me is one, the big one there that I learned, and this is kind of what I said in my essay, is like Freddie Mercury used the resistance as a guide. And the resistance is like an unseen force that all creatives have to deal with that actually prevents them from sitting down and doing creative work. It's when you can't quite get an idea. It's like, that's the resistance just trying to get you to give up and move on. It was, that's a, it's a term coined by the author, Stephen Pressfield. And so a lot of people, they look at the resistance as force they have to overcome. As a creative, I have to push through the resistance and get past it so that I can create whatever I want to create. I have to overcome this hurdle in order to actually make the thing. But Freddie Mercury, you did it, did the opposite. If he ran into the resistance, he would go, okay, that's it and give up. And my interpretation of that is one, so he let the resistance as act as a guide for him. He had to be able to find a song and find it relatively easily in order for him to pursue it and actually turn it into a song. And my interpretation of that is because the objective of, from my understanding, Freddie's objective with his music was to let it be heard and experienced by the widest audience possible. In order for something to be widely consumable, it has to be simple enough that everyone can enjoy it. And so for Freddie, if a song was easy enough, if a song was simple enough that it could be conceived easily, then you can assume it would also be consumed easily. And so that was, that's my thought, is that was kind of what he was doing, is he had to find the song, he let the resistance be his guide to find the simplest ideas that would be as widely applicable to the widest audience. Another thing too that he did with kind of like this wide audience in mind, and Peter talked about this, was he, Freddie wrote for emotion, right? Peter, the quote, the, and the main emotion was love. Like Peter said, um, love was what he was about. And Freddie would do that. He would focus on the emotion more than anything, right? So he would do the music first and then the words after. And, and P, as Peter said in the interview, like he didn't necessarily like the words. He was great at, at the music side of it, but not necessarily the word part. That wasn't the part he liked, but he focused on the music because the music, one, it came easier to him, and two, the music is the encapsulation of the emotion. The words is the specifics of the emotion. I guess you could look at it that way. And the specifics of the emotion are specifically applicable to Freddie Mercury. Right? Not everyone went through this experiences that he went through to come to that song. But everyone has felt the feelings he's had. They felt love. They felt heartbreak. They felt joy. They felt sadness. They felt pain. Everyone has felt the the wide scale of emotions. And so Freddie would tap into those emotions because anyone can relate to a feeling. Not ev everyone can relate to a specific experience. And so Freddie would focus on emotion in his art. And what Peter said he was really good at, that much better than other artists, is he was able to encapsulate the, emo encapsulate the emotion in one song, which made it more intense and more visceral experience for the listener and Peter's saying most artists take three, four, five songs to try and properly encapsulate a single emotion. And Freddie could do it in one song, and that would make it much more intense, have a much more significant punch when he'd listen to it and make it a more memorable song. And so I think that that's interesting, right? So that little peek into his creative processes, he would find he would only he would only pursue a song if he truly knew he had something, if it came to him quickly, and he would focus on emotions, and he would write. And again, this is my interpretation, but he would only work on songs that came to him quickly because that means they could be appreciated by a wide audience. And he would focus on the emotion because the emotion is more, more relatable to a wider audience than a specific story. And the thing to remember with Queen is Freddie wasn't the only person who wrote their songs. 
there was four members of the band. This was unique to Queen. This wasn't every band, but every single member of Queen wrote the music. Every single member of the band has had hits. It's not like Freddie wrote all the hits and everyone else just kind of contributed. Every single one of them wrote hits. Their bassist, John Deacon, was like a secret weapon hit-making machine. Like every single guy on there, and obviously Roger Taylor, cannot mention him, and Brian May, all four members of the band were very good songwriters. And that was their strength, right? Like Queen's uniqueness was their strength in two respects. One being that each member of the band wrote songs. Actually, hold on. We'll put a pin in that point. We're going to come back to that. The first way the Queen was the strength was their uniqueness is that they didn't follow trend. They wanted to make music that was universal, that was Queen music. And as a result, they didn't necessarily follow the trends. So that was unique. They were focused on the Queen sound and not the popular sound. They were focused on what made Queen unique. And two, each member of the band wrote songs and they wrote all of the songs in their own style. So what we say when we say that Queen, so that they eat, I'm trying to figure out how to word this properly. So Queen's strength was their uniqueness. There was a certain Queen sound that everyone understood as Queen. But within that sound, each member of the band wrote in their own unique way. So the Queen's sound was the staples of a Queen song. Freddie's vocals, Brian's guitar, Roger's harmonies, those were kind of like, and the way I've described it in essays, like those are the bricks they used to build the house, but they build the house differently every single time. So all four guys knew what tools they were using, but they would use them all differently. And so Freddie's songs was different from how Brian wrote songs, was different from how John wrote songs, which was different from how Roger Taylor wrote songs. And so they would come together, or they would all write songs, they would come together, and now they not only have, they're only not trying to, they're only, now they're not only trying to not follow the trends and do what they've done previously, they're trying to create a new sound for them in four different styles. So the album itself was unique. And so that was part of Queen's strength is they never rested on their laurels. So not only when they all write, they have a different sound throughout the album, not all the songs sound the same. If you stack up all their albums over time, all their albums are unique. None of their albums sound the same. They are all different. And I asked Peter if that was an intentional move on the band. Was it to always try and innovate the sound? And he said that wasn't actually, they weren't trying to innovate the sound and do, they were trying to just not do what they'd done before, which kind of sounds like the same side of, a different side of the same coin, but hear me out on this. So instead of the pressure of, we need to create something new, what is a new sound? What do I have to try and discover and do in order to create something new instead they inverted that problem so inversion is a mental model where you look at a problem from the opposite side and so instead of trying to create something new queen instead would try to not do what they'd done before and again it sounds like a very similar thing but it's a huge perspective shift if to try and create something new that no one else has ever done is a very daunting task there's a wide range of things that creates too many possibilities. Trying not to do what you've done before narrows the scope of everything instead of what is everyone ever in the world created. Okay, I need to avoid making that. Versus what have I done before? I just need to not do that again. It makes it a much simpler problem to overcome. I thought that was super interesting. Is that, And then they didn't necessarily like, we need to apply inversion to this problem. That's not what they were doing, but 
they didn't have that as a conscious thought, but it's what they were doing. They weren't looking at how do we make something new? It was just how do we not do what we've done before? And so it's applying that mental model of inversion towards it. And it's not a total reinvention every time either, right? It's, again, using what you're good at in new ways. So Queen wasn't trying necessarily. It's not like on one album, Freddie was the lead singer, Brian was the guitarist, Roger was the drummer, John was the bassist, and after the next album, they all switched and Freddie became the bassist and Roger became the... Like, like, they didn't do that. They knew what they did well, and they weren't trying to move away from what they did well. They were trying to do what they did well and apply it in new ways. They weren't trying to recycle the same thing. They were using, again, the bricks they used to build the house, and they built the house differently every single time. And there can be a fear that's applied, that comes out of that, right? Where... What if people don't like your new sound? You know, and that's that can be a trap, right? People like this one thing. I'm going to keep giving them this one thing. But the thing is, people eventually get bored. And it makes me think of this John Bellion quote. And John Bellion is a singer, artist, producer that I'm a big fan of. I actually think I talked about him on the last podcast. But um, his biggest hit was All Time Low, because I've had an all-time low, 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 that guy. A lot of people, a shocking amount of people don't know who that is. And if you've never listened to John Bellion, go and do it. He has two albums, three EPs, all fire. But he absolutely exploded off the back of his debut album, The Human Condition. And people didn't like how on his second album, which was a Glory Sound Prep, that the sound kind of changed. People didn't like it when it first came out. And more often than not, people will resist change, whether it be from your sound, from your style, whatever it might be. People don't like change. And so it always takes them some time to acclimatize to the change you're doing. And so there will naturally be a level of resistance when you do put out something new in a new way, in a new style. So John Bellion would put out, put out Human Condition. Everyone loved it. Put out Glory Sound Prep. Different kind of sound, different approach. People didn't necessarily like it as much. There's still, again, the tenets of what makes John Bellion a great artist that was there. But he did, tried some different things with it. And people didn't necessarily like it. And John's response was like, if you just want to listen to All Time Low, or if you want me to make another All Time Low, if you just want to hear that, just go listen to All Time Low again. It's boring to just make the same thing over and over and over again. And I just need you to remember that, right? Like, you don't have to necessarily be beholden to the style you're in now. People will naturally push back on you a little bit. But again, you don't want to make the same thing over and over again because people will get bored. The key to a long-term career as a creative is to constantly do something new, is to provide something fresh to your audience. You don't want to just keep giving them what... You just you don't want to just keep giving them what you've already done. They will eventually get bored, and if they really want it, they can always go back and watch or listen to you what you've already done. And in order to do this, you have to move away from your work, right? Like, Freddie looked at his music as... Like, he said he wanted people to treat it like a tissue. They use it when they need it and discard it when they're done. So the three minutes or whatever, and then they could just throw the song away. And for him, that was his way of also separating himself from the music, right? He wasn't beholden to what he already made. He wasn't going to keep making it. He was going to try and make something new because he's made that music and he's thrown away. He's thinking about something else now. And I hear that. And that's important. Right? You're, you have to also be comfortable as an artist to move away from what you've already done. To not, I think it was Andrew Schultz said this on his podcast with Chris Williamson. I think, I believe it was... Chris Williamson being interviewed by Andrew Schultz on the Flagrant podcast is to move away from what from that which made you successful is difficult. 
And so in order to reinvent yourself, in order to do something new, you have to do that. And that's a scary thing to do as an artist. And I have a lot of empathy for you if you're trying to do that. And it's not guaranteed to work. Just because you do something new doesn't mean it's going to work. But that's what's required in order to reinvent the sound, in order to push the envelope. You have to take that creative risk, and that requires you to move away from that which made you successful. And so I hear all of that, and I very much understand all that and believe that. But then I flip, again, look at it from a different angle. There's a clip of Tyler, the creator, talking about about this whole process of like you make the thing and then you go make the next thing, which is crazy because you'll, especially when it comes to an album, you'll spend months, years working on this album. You'll promote it for two months and then you'll never talk about it ever again, which is so interesting, right? Like even when you think about if you on an even more compressed timeline, a YouTube video, you'll spend three weeks making a video, two weeks making a video, put it out there, you'll promote it for like three days, if that, and you'll never talk about it ever again. It's just, it's like you have to also be, like, I think part of that whole equation, and I, and I even, I'm again, this isn't necessarily like a tangible takeaway, like this is something I'm still trying to unpack and work through my head, is like the goal I think should be to make something that you're so proud of that you will be able to talk about it in two, three years, and you'll still want to talk about it, right? I, I, but then again, but that also, it's, it's just complicated. I'm still trying to unpack that, right? Where, yeah, you. it was just so, like, it was just, I remember listening, watching that Tyler clip, and it made me pause, because it's like, why would you stop promoting something if you're going to spend all that time? Why wouldn't you? And I think there's a quote, actually. Let me see if I can find it. I know the quotes is always takes me a minute. Um it was Ryan Holiday in The Perennial Seller, which if you haven't read, is a fantastic book. I'm trying to find the exact quote, but I'm pretty sure, and I could be wrong, but I think he says something along the lines like, you want to promote your work for twice as long as it took you to make it, as something along those lines. And we're not doing that anymore. So I'm, I'm just trying to find the exact quote, because I think it'll be fire if I can find it. Um... I don't think I can find it this fast. This is the problem with doing these with one take and no editing. Sometimes we just have to to push through these these moments. But either way, I'm pretty sure, and I could be wrong, so don't quote this. But I'm pretty sure he was saying like you should try to promote something twice as long as it took you to make it. And right now we are not doing that. Myself include. Actually, no. I've been doing a better job. I'm going to give myself a little credit. I've been doing a better job of promoting something for weeks and months after I roll it out by not just promoting one video all the time. I'll kind of cycle through all my recent videos every day or two. And so all my promotion will last longer for all of my content. But I digress. This isn't about me. But the point is that you should promote what you do, but also don't be afraid to just rest on that. I think that's a clean takeaway. We're just going to move on to my my next one. Is you want your audience to leave satisfied. And this is what I, this was Peter's answer to when I asked him, is there any commonalities, consistent traits amongst these great performers? Because he spent time, not only was he Freddie Mercury's personal assistant, but he also worked for the Royal Ballet and at the Royal Opera House. So he's seen elite dancers, elite opera singers. And then he went and worked with Queen and spent time in the studio, obviously with Queen. And Freddie was with Michael Jackson in the studio at one point. So he spent time with Michael Jackson. He was there when they recorded another, um, another one bites the dust. Um, no, what's the David Bowie song? Hold on. Hold on here. One more. I don't I promise to not pick my phone up after this. It's not another one bites the dust. Um 
David Bowie Queen. Under Pressure. Oh, my goodness. Anyways, he was in the studio with Queen and David Bowie when they made Under Pressure. So he spent a time with all these great performers, and he said that one thing that they all have in common. One is that they always want the audience to leave content. They want them to leave satisfied, no matter who it is. They also want themselves to be satisfied as satisfied as artists, but they want the audience to leave satisfied. And that's important, right? Like whatever you're making, that should be your goal. You want your audience to feel good that they spent their time and potentially their money to consume what you've made. And I think a thing that people forget sometimes is that whatever you make today is going to influence whether or not people will watch it tomorrow. Whatever you make today, yeah, will influence whether or not people will watch your work tomorrow. If people have a bad experience with your whatever you make, the likelihood of them watching whatever you put out next is going to decrease. But if you put out something amazing that they love and they're very satisfied, they feel satisfied after consuming it, whether it be an album, a video, a movie, the odds that they watch your next film, it's going to be higher. Like, for example, I'm trying to think of a director that I watched that I didn't like the movie of. I, odds are, I can't think of an example because I haven't watched any of the other movies. But I watched Hereditary, which is Ari Aster's first movie, and I was hooked. And I was like, I need to watch what else he made. And then I went and watched Hereditary. And Bo is Afraid is his new film. I haven't had the time to watch it, but I really want to watch it because I was satisfied after I watched I was so satisfied after watching Hereditary that it just makes me want to watch all Ari Aster's other movies as they come out. Focus on satisfying your audience because that is going to bring them back for future shows, movies, videos, whatever it is that you make. And the other thing that Peter said that these artists all have in common is they are incredibly self-critical. They come off stage and the first thing they do is that was wrong, this was bad, that didn't work. He said at Queen sometimes after shows, they would have yelling matches and just scream at each other about what everyone did wrong that show. And I think for me, it's like, oh, they're all negative. But I think how I kind of look at that, and again, we're kind of inverting this, shout out to inversion once again, is that they all have such a high bar for what they're delivering. There's a quote I was talking to, I had a call earlier today, not to name drop, with the co-founder of MTV. And this reminds me of a quote on his website. This is kind of like the artist's mindset. Perfection is acceptable, but nothing less. And I feel like that is all artists, is they have such a high bar. They want perfection, which is something you can never achieve. So there will always be something that you can improve on in your quest for perfection. And so they will always be self-critical. And that's part of what makes them better is they are so self-critical that they're able to identify the areas they need to improve on next time. And I asked Peter if there was like a, t- if it was like when Queen would have their yelling matches, if it was necessarily something that they knew, like they would leave that and know what they have to improve on at the next show. And he said, no, it's more of like a cathartic thing. Like they were just there to just catharsis. They just needed to yell and get it out. But I still think that at that level, you're able to kind of clock everything you know you need to improve on and do it next time. They are so self-aware of what they're creating and how it's going that they're able to make those improvements almost subconsciously or at least lock, log them subconsciously and make those improvements next time. And so part of what makes a great artist great is their undying, unrelenting effort to achieve perfection. And my last takeaway here, which is something we can all forget kind of as we do this thing, is as we talk about Freddie Mercury and the art that he made and the concerts and all this is like, this was real, right? Like sometimes you can you lose 
the reality of everything. That like you forget that this person I'm talking to, and this is myself included, maybe this is you, that like this conversation I'm having with Peter, like these are fun stories. These are real stories, which is crazy to think about and like kind of weird to wrap your head around that this all happened. He was actually there. And like when it's people you've never met, sometimes the, the fact that they are real can kind of flicker a little bit. But this is real. These are real people. These are their real lives. It's just an interesting thing to remember. And the last thing I'll say, if you want to learn more, you can read my essays if you'd like or watch my videos there on YouTube. Um, or yeah, my essays if you want to learn a little bit more. But what you can also do is you can get a copy of Peter's book, which especially if you're a Queen fan is something I highly recommend you check out. There's behind the scenes never before seen photos of from Peter's time working with Freddie. There's beautiful artwork in the book. It's also Peter's biography, so there, there's a section on Queen, but there's also the rest of his life. But Peter's book is available now. It'll be linked down below if you want to check it out. Thank you so much for listening to this. If you haven't listened to the interview with Peter yet, I highly recommend you go and do so. We had a great interview. But other than that, I just appreciate you. If you'd like to follow me, you can find me anywhere on social media at the Jacob Kelly. Feel free to come and say hello. My DMs are always open. Especially, I would love to hear your takeaways from this conversation, what you thought of it, what you learned, what you're going to take take away moving forward. Um, I'm always interested. If you agree with me, if you disagree with me, whatever, I'd love to hear from you. But thank you once again for listening. We'll talk soon.